grace, mercy, and peace from from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This Sunday always follows right around Valentine's Day, so it's fitting that 1 Corinthians 13 is the epistle reading. And St. Valentine's Day, we kind of think of it in terms of romantic love, but St. Valentine did not see it that way. He was, as far as we know, in prison because he was marrying Christian couples, that is true, against direct orders from the government, mostly because they were soldiers who were not supposed to be getting married. And he went to prison for that and was beheaded for that. That's the kind of love St. Valentine showed to those he was serving. And in our epistle reading today, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about that same kind of love. But the context here is really important. Right before this chapter and the chapters leading up to it, Paul had been rebuking them for all kinds of jealousy and dissensions and fighting that had been going on in Corinth. Right before this, he just talked about spiritual gifts. And now, in between that and how they should use the gifts, he gives this very important section on how you are to love others. In fact, some of the modern scholars say, well, Paul just either added this later or someone else added it because it breaks up the flow of Paul's argument. You could take it out and it doesn't impact anything. Except that's not true. Paul has exactly where he wants it because love and exercising the gifts in love is very central to what he's trying to get across to the Corinthians. And when we talk about love, we use one word, love, and we use it for everything. We love pizza. We love football. We love our spouse. And it's from context that we gather what it means, but the Greeks didn't do that. They had a variety of words that explained very specific types of love. So eros was a romantic, sensual kind of love. Philia was the love among friends. Philadelphia, for which the city is named, is brotherly love. Storge is parental love, the love a parent has for their child. And then the word Paul uses here, and is used throughout the New Testament, the word agape, is a holy, benevolent, it's a disinterested love. It's doing it for the sake just of the other. Doesn't want anything in return. Sometimes we explain that this is a sacrificial love. Whereas the other loves are often tainted with selfishness, This kind of love is just for the sake of loving the other. Not seeking any kind of reward, not seeking any kind of benefit, but just to love. Indeed, this is the word the Bible uses for God's love for us in Jesus. It's the word used by Paul to say, the love of God has been poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. So it's this love, God's own perfect love, that indeed produces in us a love for God in return. That is the vertical dimension of this love. And this Trinitarian trait of Christian agape, it sets it apart from even the highest forms of love that the Greeks could ever imagine. Agape is inseparable from loving everybody else. Because there's a horizontal dimension to this. If we receive God's agape love, then that love in turn will love everyone around us, even our enemies, as Jesus says. And so what Paul is discussing here is not a love that you need to earn salvation, but a love that is produced by faith 
Because God's love has produced this love in your hearts. It's a love for the neighbor that flows from faith. So we'll look at three parts of this and then conclude with looking specifically at the love of Jesus. But we want to follow Paul's outline. Love is essential, he says in the first few verses. Love gives birth to all other virtues. And then finally, love lasts forever. So first, Paul tells us love is essential. And it's interesting, his argument here is, look, even if you had the greatest gifts, and he starts with speaking in tongues because the Corinthians thought that indeed was the greatest gifts. Even if you could speak all the languages of the earth, even if you could speak heavenly languages with the angels, but you didn't love others, you're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, Paul didn't just randomly choose that example as just, I've read some places that say, well, it was an annoying sound. Well, sure. But it was also instruments used in pagan worship in Corinth. So what Paul's telling them and us is that even if you could do that, but you didn't have love, it'd be no different than pagan worship. You wouldn't be worshiping the true gods. So maybe if we put it this way, since we're not really too worried about speaking in tongues... Even if you came in here and we had the perfect worship service and everything went perfectly right and everything was done as reverently and as perfectly as possible, that if we did not have love, it means nothing. It'd be no different than pagan worship. It'd be no different than worshiping an idol, Paul says. Then he says, if I have the gift of prophecy, and we understood all of God's mysteries, Remember, mysteries in the Bible aren't things hidden, but they're things that have been revealed to us. We may not understand them fully as God does, but we have an understanding of them. And we had all knowledge. If we had all the right answers, and we knew doctrine perfectly, and on the doctrinal test at the gates of heaven, we got 100%, we didn't miss a thing. Paul says, but if you don't have love with it, then it's worthless. It's meaningless. Paul says you could have the greatest, strongest faith that anyone's ever seen. You could look out the window and tell the mountains to jump, and they would say how high, and then they would do it. And Paul says, but if you don't have love with that, it's meaningless. You're nothing, he says. Paul then goes on to say, even if you did something that looks pretty good, like feeding the poor, If you fed the poor, though, and you did it for the applause of men, or you did it just merely because it made you feel good, or whatever it may be, if it was detached from love, it profits you nothing. Then he gives another one that's kind of interesting. He says, even if you offered your body to be burned, that is, even if you were martyred for the faith, but you didn't have love, it's nothing. It's interesting, T.S. Eliot, writing about St. Thomas Becket's, in his murder in the cathedral. The final temptation that St. Thomas faces there is that when he receives the crown of martyrdom, it would make him greater in people's eyes. It would be a human glory of triumph. It would feed his pride. And so St. Thomas answers in this story by T.S. Eliot, the last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. You see, even in martyrdom, You can do it for all the wrong reasons. And Paul says, if you do it without love, then what have you really accomplished? He says, nothing. It's only love that makes it 
really, truly a godly martyrdom. We have examples of this in our world all the time. I mean, think about a suicide bomber. Suicide bomber goes into a place and blows himself up, taking others with them, thinking they've done a great deed for their gods. Perhaps even out of love for their gods. And yet we will look at that and say, that was not loving. There was no love there. That was a travesty of love. And that's Paul's point, even for the Christian. Paul then shows us, not only is it essential, but it's so essential that it is what gives birth to every other virtue in the Christian life. Faith produces love, and then love produces everything else. And so he tells us that love suffers long and is kind. That is, as you've probably memorized, that love is patient and kind. It's interesting the way Paul words everything throughout this section. Love is personified. Right? Because you can, and we'll look at this more in a moment, you could go through 1 Corinthians 13, and the description of love, you could say, Jesus is, or Jesus is not, and it still works. In fact, the way Paul says this is weird. Literally, it says, love, patience, which doesn't make sense in English, so we don't translate it that way. Love, kinds. That doesn't work either. Paul's point is that love is active. That true Christian love is shaped by actually doing something. It looks a certain way. It behaves a certain way. It's not just a generic feeling. Love is patient or suffers long. That is, love puts up with a lot. And in fact, I would argue that all the things it says love is not in the coming verses here are the opposite of what it means for love to be patient and kind. If love is patient and kind, it will put up with a lot and continue to sacrifice on behalf of the other. It won't do all these other things that Paul says it doesn't do, because it's suffering. It's putting up with things that normal love would not put up with. It is kind. Kindness is hard for us because we confuse it with being nice. And the way I've talked about this before, and I think it's a helpful distinction I've come across, is that when you're nice to someone, you're just trying to diffuse something in the moment. You just want it to be over and done with. And so maybe it's not in their best interest what you're doing, but you don't want to pursue it further. So you're just nice so that you can move on with your day. Kindness always has the long-term view of that person in mind. In fact, one definition I came across this week that I really appreciated was that kindness, godly kindness, this kind of love, makes others realize how important and precious they are to God's. And that kind of kindness may come with speaking the truth in love that is saying things that don't appear nice. But to let them know who they are truly in Christ may include rebuking them for sin. That may be the loving thing to do in that moment. Paul says love does not envy. That is, it's not jealous. Now that's a weird one because the Bible tells us that God is jealous. He's a jealous God. But in the context here, the kind of jealousy he's talking about is not a proper kind of jealousy which can't exist. For example, between spouses. Right? A spouse should have a kind of holy jealousy for their spouse's time or for who they're spending time with. 
just as God does for us. But this kind of jealousy throughout Corinthians is being jealous of one another because God maybe gave them a gift he didn't give you. Maybe he gave them more money than he gave you. Maybe their life looks easier than the life he gave you. And so love, though, doesn't look at that and get jealous or envious about it. In fact, it's going to say love rejoices for others on their behalf. Paul uses several words to say that love's not boastful or proud. In fact, the one word can be translated, it's not a windbag. It's not talking about itself all the time. Love is interested in doing what's best for the other person, even those, especially those, biblically speaking, who are lowly and neglected, who everybody else ignores. Love's not too proud to humble themselves and go to those people and even love them. Love is not rude or does not behave rudely. Perhaps the best picture in your mind here is the proverbial bull in a china shop. That's not how love acts towards others. It doesn't just go in and do whatever it wants and whatever the consequences are, that's just too bad. Love thinks about how what it does impacts others. Love is not rude. It's not just running over others. Not causing destruction. Love is not ever seeking its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. One translation puts it this way. Love does not demand its own. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Right? Love isn't interested in keeping a tally of all the things it did right. So it marks it down in a scorecard. Here's what I did for you. You wronged me in this way, though. Trying to keep some kind of record of what you did well and what the other person did wrong. Love's not interested in such things. Love is interested in serving and loving and sacrificing for the other. It's interesting, too, that love does not, it says, rejoice in iniquity or rejoice in injustice. It doesn't rejoice in wickedness, but it rejoices when truth, when love, when God's word wins out. That's what it rejoices in. It's not interested in rejoicing those things that are wicked, that are unjust, even if those things benefit us. Even if the injustice, the unrighteousness helps us out. It's not interested in such things. So Paul will sum up this section by saying, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is, love doesn't give up. It doesn't lose the faith. It's always hopeful. And it puts up with a lot through every circumstance. This kind of sacrificial love isn't just going to stop because things got hard. Because things got difficult. So it says, well, you know what? That's too much. I don't want to love anymore. This kind of agape love keeps on loving no matter what. And then Paul, in the end, it seems disconnected perhaps at first, but his point is these other things are incomplete, but love, 
Love is what never fails. Love is what actually lasts and endures forever. We won't have to worry in the new heavens and new earth about who has what gift and who doesn't have what gift. It won't matter how much knowledge you thought you had here. It won't matter what great gifts you got, even if it was speaking all the tongues of the earth, even if it was martyrdom. Paul says in the end, all those things give way to the perfect, to the complete, to the whole. And that's ultimately love. It endures to the end. Remember what Jesus, was said about Jesus by John. He loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. Where there's agape love, there's faithfulness to the end. Whether it's talking about God's love to us or our love for others. Right? Romantic love, arrows can be fickle. It can be here one day and gone the next. Friendship, philia can break down. Friends can cease to be friends. But if you love someone with an agape love, if you're loving them self-sacrificially, if you're loving them no matter what you get in return, then that love doesn't stop. It just keeps on loving. Which, by the way, is when we have marriage ceremonies in the church. The type of love that their marriage is sealed with is Christ's agape love. Right? It's his love for the church. That's what marriage is to look like, Paul tells us elsewhere. That kind of love, as we say in the marriage ceremony, lasts even to death do us parts. That's the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. And it's, notice he says, faith, hope, and love all last forever. But faith and hope are different in the new heavens and new earth. They're fulfilled in a way that you're not going to have any problems, right, trusting God. Your hope has been fulfilled. Your faith has been fulfilled. All of that's perfect now. But you'll still be loving others. You'll be loving God and your neighbor for all eternity. Perfectly, completely, and holy. In a way that we can only barely imagine here. Now, as I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 13 is a beautiful summary of the love of Christ. And I encourage you, when you go home, open your Bible and put Jesus in wherever it says love is. And wherever it says is not, Jesus is not these things. And you will find it's a beautiful depiction of our Lord's. And in fact, it's a good thing to keep in mind as you read through the Gospels. How does Christ show these things in the flesh? How is love manifest through Christ for us? And you'll see that from beginning to end of his ministry, Christ's love is always a self-sacrificial love. It's a love that does not end. It's a love that keeps on giving. It's a love that drives him to the cross. That's the kind of love he has for you. It is this perfect, pure, agape love that knows no end. So that whether it's his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, it's all driven by a perfect and pure agape love for you, the sinner. You cannot perfectly love the way he loved, and yet he still loves you and makes you lovely in his love. And so Paul puts it like this in Romans 5, Now, hope does not disappoint. Why? Why does it not disappoint you? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The very love of Jesus 
that he exhibited in his life day in and day out is the very love that God takes and pours into your heart through the Holy Spirit. It's the love that I mentioned at the beginning that allows you to love God, that produces a love in you for God. It's the same love then that we pour out to the neighbor. Not perfectly, not completely like Jesus did, but we strive to love as Jesus did. We strive to have an agape love for others. And we know that because of his love for us, when we fail, when we're unloving, when we're unkind, when we're the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13 in more ways than we care to count in a day, even sometimes among our own families, that's the love of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. It's the love of Jesus that picks us up, cleanses us, and gives us strength to try again the next day. Amen. The peace of God passes on your sin and guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.